I think that Jackson Brown tune uh, sounds kind of a note of, of, I guess you'd say, optimistic disillusionment. On this program, we certainly understand how someone can be disillusioned by all that's going on in the world sometimes. But uh, a lot of good comes from just simply talking about it. I mean, from the medical perspective, before you can uh, treat a problem, you kind of need to have a diagnosis. So we spend a lot of time on this show diagnosing. We go out of our way here to present the facts and analysis as, as we see it. There are other ways to get at the truth. One of the beauties of a community-based radio station is that you can get all kinds of different looks at the world through a process that I guess you would call decentralized. It's a great privilege, by the way, to have been doing this now seven and a half years. Someone who's been doing it even longer that I want to take my hat off to is our, uh, our fellow host, Franz Cassing. Her wonderful program, It's About You, does exactly that. Brings someone on and lets that person dominate the hour. When you're a guest on Franz's show, it's about you. She's been very generous, by the way, in sending us uh, numerous guests over the years. On a couple of occasions, she had me over to be her wingman for a, a certain uh, guest or topic she knew I would enjoy. And, and, and doggone it, that's, that's how it should be. Last quarter, It's About You had a guest on that we've had on our program as well. UC Davis Professor of History, Dr. Catherine Olmsted. She spoke about her new book, Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories, and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. A transcript of that interview was published in KDVS's in-house magazine, I guess you'd call it, KDVations, which comes out four times a year. When I sat on and read the extensive interview with Dr. Olmsted, because as I say, when you're on France's show, it's about you. You get the whole hour. I was struck by numerous comments that the professor made that I have to respectfully disagree with. Actually, it's more subtle than that. As a rule, I don't have a problem with the facts as she presents them. It's rather the fact that when you use the term conspiracy theory, you're contending with two separate definitions of that term. A lot of folks like to throw that, uh, that label around and leave it rather loosely defined or sometimes not defined at all. Its basic straightforward definition is that it's a, a belief that certain events result from the plotting of some sort of cabal. But unlike, say, historical analysis where you review how it was, say, the Nazis came to power, you're instead calling it a conspiracy theory, knowing that uh, there's a clear connotation when that term is used, that the subject at hand is unworthy of being taken seriously. I would say that conspiracy theory is kind of an ambiguous cliche. You can inject it into a conversation anytime you want to discredit a particular point of view. But there was an interesting debate about the use of the term on Wikipedia. Its appropriateness was challenged. Some argued that the label was inherently pejorative. Because once you've combined those words, conspiracy and theory, into one term, you've in effect placed a tinfoil hat on the heads of those who are advocating for a certain position. The case was made that even if an article is literally about people conspiring, the phrase conspiracy theory is used for the purpose of discrediting some articles via that secondary connotation of the word. The argument, by the way, did not garner enough support to become policy. I do think this is rather unfortunate. Someone's advocating a position, and you disagree, and you 
basically can affix that label of conspiracy theory to what the person's saying. You've now established a dynamic wherein you are politely listening to what he or she may have to say, but also that while you're giving them their say, you might well expect that at any moment men in white coats are going to show up. Personally, I thought uh, Franz did a very good job speaking with Dr. Olmsted about uh, her book on 20th century conspiracy theories, but uh, I was really struck by an interview that was conducted with her on C-SPAN 2. In fact, I think we need to play a clip from that interview. This, by the way, comes from an interview with Dr. Olmsted conducted by University of Southern California sociology professor Barry Glasner, himself the author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. So I'd like to begin with an incident uh, in your book that I found particularly revealing about uh, really the whole theme of the book and a lot of what's been going on in the U.S. And this goes back to 1992 when Bill Clinton had been elected president uh, and he called in his longtime friend, Webster Hubble. Uh, And you recount how he talked to his friend, who he was thinking of appointing, planning to appoint to a high position in the administration. Uh, And he gave him a couple of secret orders. So he asked him two questions that you recall in the book. First was, who killed JFK? And the second was, are there UFOs? Now, as I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, how did we get to that point in U.S. history that this young, very bright, very well-educated president um, would essentially take so seriously a couple of conspiracy theories. Well, that's why I included the incident in the book, is I think it's so revealing that by 1992 we had gotten to the point where the head of government had conspiracy theories about the government. You know, and so, so what I explore in the book exactly is how did we get to this point that uh, Bill Clinton himself would think that there was uh, perhaps some government involvement in a cover-up of UFOs or a cover-up in the Kennedy assassination, and that there were secret government files somewhere that Webb Hubble you know, now could put his hands on, um, and that all it took was access, and then you could find out the answers to these questions. So conspiracy theories about the government were really permeating American culture by the 1990s. So by that point, they were really quite common, even, even to the point that a president um, would, would take them seriously. Now, I got to say, I personally find that to be a remarkable exchange. You've got two UC professors basically telling you that, boy, this is how insane this whole conspiracy theory stuff has gotten. That a guy as bright as Rhodes Scholar President-elect Bill Clinton would actually imagine that somewhere out there there's a file related to a cover-up related to the murder of President Kennedy. And uh, I sort of hate to point out to these professors, and to you, dear listener, that the fact that there were cover-ups of epic proportions regarding the murder of President Kennedy, is a matter of historical fact. And that is not a position that is the least bit hard to defend. And the thing is, it seems quite clear that Dr. Olmsted is aware of this. To quote from the transcript in K Deviations, when Franz asked her about the Kennedy case, she said, and I quote, The Lyndon Johnson administration became immediately concerned that any real investigation of the murder would lead to the Kennedy administration's murder plots against Fidel Castro, because the accused assassin had been a communist and had wanted to go to Cuba and had met with Cubans in Mexico City. 
there was concern that any real examination of his ideology or his movements or his ties might reveal that the Kennedy CIA had been trying many a time to engage mafia hitmen to kill Fidel Castro. So obviously the good doctor is aware of the fact that it wasn't a real thorough investigation, the Warren Commission report, and that a lid was put on to make sure that the investigations didn't reveal what the CIA had been up to. Thus, as a matter of historical fact, the Warren Commission report involved a cover-up. Actually, it involved several, but that, that's just one that the doctor's aware of. Now, both these professors present the idea that, uh, you know, the very notion that there's some file out there that might uh, reveal what happened in the Kennedy assassination, uh, just, just an absurd idea. I would have to say something that reflects some, let's say, slipshod research. And uh, contrary to this notion, I would say that it's not preposterous that uh, Bill Clinton in 1992 wanted to look for some secret files regarding the Kennedy case, because a Washington Post reporter, as we speak, I mean, in the present time, now, is attempting by legal means to get the CIA to produce some files related to some anti-Castro Cuban groups that the CIA was funding, which Lee Harvey Oswald interacted with. Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley is always try also trying to get some files released on a man whose job was apparently to steer the Warren Commission and other investigators away from certain areas. And as we speak now, long after Bill Clinton became president and uh, made inquiries of Webster Hubble, now those top secret files remain top secret. If the ideas of conspiracies and cover-ups are so absurd, why should that be? In fact, we would refer you to an October of this year article in the New York Times, apparently written by Scott Shane, the man we quoted in the first segment with the article about uh, Tora Bora. Then the California edition of the paper got listed above the fold for once with the title, CIA is still cagey about Oswald mystery. Anyway, uh, early next year, we hope that we'll be able to get Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley on this program to talk about this topic. I had a chance to sit across from him at dinner a few years ago, and he was a most interesting and entertaining dining partner. And uh, like I say, we'll see if we can't get him for you early next year. And I certainly want to add that uh, my interest in this particular case uh, has led me to meet many tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorists. I can assure you that such individuals exist, and uh, I have a lot of funny stories I probably should share at some point, not today. But I'm also privileged to know a, a, quite a number of excellent researchers who apparently dig uh, deeper than some professors we might mention. In fact, a frequent contributor to this program, Lisa Pease, commented when I sent her this uh, same, uh, same interview we just uh, excerpted earlier, commented, Lisa, maybe conspiracy theories exist because there are actual conspiracies. Another person who's contributed to this program more than once, Jerry Polakoff, listened to this interview and said that this whole idea of talking about how Americans are more prone to believe conspiracy theories than our Europeans is nonsense. Jerry noted that JFK conspiracy notions were much more prevalent and much earlier in Europe than they were in America. If you'd like to look into this stuff, and we certainly hope uh, you do do that, dear listener, we would suggest that there's no better place to start than the book Web of Conspiracy, a guide to conspiracy theory sites on the internet by James Broderick and Darren Miller. We 
interviewed Mr. Broderick, and that interview is available to you on our website, radioparallax.com. Some of the topics listed in that book are by any reasonable standards of the, uh, you know, the tinfoil hat type of conspiracy theories, you know, the idea that the moon landings were fake, the idea that the protocols of the elders of Zion are real, and the notion that there's anything to this, uh, th- this bit of wackiness called the Philadelphia Experiment are from the lunatic fringe. On the other hand, the notion that there's a, a Shakespeare authorship question is a topic that we've, uh, we- we've delved into more than once in this program. It's very entertaining. It's going to be hard to prove one way or the other 400 years after the fact. But um, it's a legitimate area for discussion. We've also talked about another topic from that book, the matter of TWA Flight 800. And all I can say is having, uh, as personal friends, someone who was supposed to have been working on the flight uh, on that fateful day, and and her husband, and having examined the evidence in the matter, uh, well, all I can tell you is, anyone who says that the government is incapable of maintaining a cover-up only has to look at the example of TWA Flight, Flight 800 to realize that, well, yes, they can. And this particular matter, that, quote, conspiracy theory, unquote, involves evidence of a missile shooting down a plane that includes eyewitness testimony, including pilots in the air, which are, by the way, consistent with the three-dimensional reconstructions of the plane's flight path and that of the missile, bolstered by radar tapes showing the interception of the two objects, and photographic proof of the drones that were being shot out to sea that day as described by numerous eyewitnesses. And it's not like physical evidence is lacking in the matter. There's metallic deposits from seat backs. There's portions of what appear to be the rocket recovered from Long Island Sound. And for quite a long time early in the investigation, people that were given a tour of the Calverton hangar where the aircraft was being reconstructed, were shown the clear-cut entrance and exit holes in the plane, which were located, by the way, precisely where a heat-seeking missile would strike a commercial jet. We've gone over some of this before, and I don't mean to go on in any greater length about this, but suffice it to say that, uh, as Lisa would say, there are conspiracies out there. There certainly are cover-ups out there, and some of these are about matters of great political, or economic import. And the reason a lot of them aren't better covered in the media is that when powerful interests don't want you to look in a particular direction, they can sometimes make it very rough on you when you do. And I can think of no better summary of that topic than the book Into the Buzzsaw, a National Press Club Award winner, which is edited by Christina Borgeson. We've talked to Christina on this program in the past, and no doubt we'll have her on again, especially in the wake of this rant I've just gone off on. And, which I think I will now bring to a close, let's, let's talk about some science topics, shall we? Let me start out by noting, as I do twice a year, that um, although the longest and shortest days of the year are June and December 21st, respectively, the earliest and latest sunsets or sunrises are offset two weeks. Thus, it is that the earliest sunset of the year is this week. By the time we get to the shortest day of the year, the sunsets will be coming later. To someone like myself, to which afternoon sun counts a lot more than morning sun, that's a good thing. This may help all of us in the battle with seasonal affective disorder, the blahs we sometimes fall into when the days are short. 
Although, oddly enough, there is some new research that suggests that when you're down, you might actually think clearer. Apparently, researchers in Australia took a look at how we tend to associate happy and healthy. They looked into how people did when they were feeling sad. The setup was the scientists induced happy or sad moods in various subjects by showing them various films and having them recall negative or positive events. When asked to judge the truth about certain urban myths, the sad subjects turned out to be less gullible than the happy ones. Not only that, they could make they, not only that, they had more accurate memories of events they'd witnessed and could make more persuasive arguments. The researchers said that although a good mood seems to encourage creativity and cooperation, it also promotes reliance on mental shortcuts, whereas a negative mood prompts the sufferer to think more carefully and brood over things and pay closer attention to the external world. Sadness apparently promotes information processing best suited to dealing with more demanding situations. So I guess the punchline of that is a positive mood is not universally desirable. At least that's what uh, psychologist Joseph Forgas told the London Daily Mail. And uh, we've all experienced the fact that, you know, a whiff of a certain smell can transport you back to childhood or, or stimulate memories, and people haven't been able to figure out why that should be. But some recent uh, research shows that the first time you smell something, the memory that it sets down is given some privileged status in your brain. Apparently, researchers in Israel showed volunteers an object, like a chair or a pencil, something that was not likely to be associated with a smell. At the same time, they exposed them to an odor or a sound. Half hour later, they showed them the same object with a different odor or sound. One week later, these researchers showed the volunteers the object again and asked them which odor or sound they associated with it. Of course, while they were doing that, they were scanning their brains. This is probably not something I'd volunteer for, but the volunteers that did were more likely to mention the first odor. And when they did, the scans of their brain showed a characteristic pattern of activity which uh, was associated with the hippocampus, an area where it processes memory. They apparently did not find a similar association with sounds. The researchers concluded that the brain reserves a special pattern of activity for memories that represent the first time we have an associated smell with a particular thing, and that such pairings are most likely laid down in childhood. And here's an item that's more, I guess, technology than it is science. We like to talk about technology. Actually, there's a letter to the editor from a man named Carl Haig in Sacramento that was uh, talking about something we've talked about on this program before, the fact that the city of Sacramento, like many communities, has decided that it would be cheaper to not treat its sewage, at least not treat it as fully as it could be treated. So uh, the city of Sacramento and other communities on the Sacramento River uh, put lots of ammonia in the river because we don't take it out of our sewage. Mr. Haig wrote the B to say, For years I've maintained that every city's drinking water intake system should by law be located downstream from that city's sewage effluent outfall. He noted, you can imagine how quickly and completely that sewage effluent would be cleaned up if such a requirement existed. Instead, cities now send their untreated sewage effluent downstream, forcing others to deal with it. Sacramento Sanitation District sends its ammonia-laden discharge downstream to poison the Delta. Quoting from an editorial by Phil Eisenberg, Mr. Haig said, as Eisenberg points out, everyone will have to sacrifice to fix the Delta, either through less water or through higher cost. And you know, that's a very simple, good idea. Will it be implemented? <laughs> I, I wouldn't hold your breath. 
But you know, rather than spend money on a useless war over in Iraq, this is exactly the kind of thing the government should be spending your tax dollars on. But let us take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We got plenty more in segment three. Don't go away. And I ain't no communist. And I ain't no capitalist. And I ain't no socialist. And I ain't no imperialist. And I ain't no Democrat. Sure ain't no Republican. I only know one party. And it is freedom. For the right, and the river opens for the right, and the river opens. 